So Money Episode 606, Karen Rinaldi, author of The End of Men. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome to So Money, everyone. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Happy Monday. Happy last day of July. It is August 1st tomorrow. How are you going to make the most of this summer? I am right now on vacation. (laughs) That's what I'm doing. And I'm enjoying every bit of it. I think I am, at least. I'm recording this before I'm actually on vacation, but I'm predicting that it is going to be a relaxing, beach-filled, pool-filled, wine-filled relaxation. Our guest today is Karen Rinaldi. After two decades editing and publishing best-selling books, Karen is out with her first novel, a book entitled The End of Men. Karen Rinaldi is the publisher of Harbor Wave, an imprint she founded in 2012 and a senior vice president at HarperCollins Publishers. She also writes nonfiction essays and has been published by the New York Times, Time, and Oprah Magazine. I really enjoyed our conversation. We talk about the challenges of writing, of publishing, of promoting a book. Karen is insistent too that we must all suck greatly at something. This is an incredible thesis. And she also speaks candidly about the unassailable truths her previous marriages taught her about money. You're going to like this episode a lot. Here is the wonderful Karen Rinaldi. Karen Rinaldi, welcome to So Money. It's a pleasure to connect with you and congratulations on your new book, The End of Men. Thank you, Farnoosh. I'm very happy to be here and talking to you. Is it really the end of men? (laughs) Oh, it isn't. You know, it's a provocation. But, um, you know, if I wrote something called The Beginning of Women, nobody would care. So (laughs) The End of Men seemed a really good alternate title. But actually, what I mean by it is that I really do feel like it's the end of the straight white male rule, I'd like to think, um, and that we're all, you know, I just want them to join us on the ground with all, all, all the other ones, you know, men, you know, other men, you know, straight, gay, black, white, everything in between women, you know, name it, everybody's on the ground. And I, the end of men just means the end of their, the end of it being all about them. At least that's that's what I that's what I wish for. And I know a lot of men who wish that too. And I want to talk about the behind the scenes of you bringing this book to market. Someone who's been on the other side of publishing yes. for decades. Tell us a little bit about the book. I know there's a nonfiction book called The End of Men by Hannah Rosen, which is more about the socioeconomic changes happening that's impacting the, you know, quote unquote need for men. Your book is totally fiction a great summer read. And we should mention was actually the inspiration for a movie. Yes, it was. Um, Maggie's plan uh, directed, produced by Rebecca Miller um, is based on one of the characters and one of the storylines in the novel, the end of men. And in fact, the movie came out before the book because the book I'd written the book, uh, actually 15 years ago when I was struggling 
um, to, you know, with young children, I had, I was running a company. Uh, we were, we go, we'll talk about money in a bit, but money was tough. So I was commuting from a long way away and basically having a hard time holding it together. And in my frustration, uh, of looking for support, but, but more than that, sort of looking for the, the other, the experience that I was having, looking for it in media and books or movies or TV, and it wasn't only my experience, it was actually all of my, my peer group. And I thought, why are we not, why, why don't we hear these stories of these of women who are actually pulling off an incredible amount of work? Um, and so I, I couldn't, I couldn't see, I didn't see us represented. So I just started creating these characters and then the characters turned into characters that interacted and they were friends. And then I create this storyline and I really wanted somebody else to write the book as, as an editor and a publisher, I thought, well, I'm going to do this and I'm going to give it to people and say, Hey, here's this idea. Can you write this book? Because I didn't intend to write a novel. And then I started making notes and started doing a draft just so I could show. It. And then finally I went up writing the damn thing over the next two years. So it was almost like an unintentional novel, but it was all about, uh, I, I, I explained to somebody, it's like a Greek chorus. It was like a Greek chorus of, of, of feedback, you know, trying to help me figure out, you know, what I was doing, how I was doing it and how I was going to manage it going forward. And it turned out to be the end of men book was okay. It had basic, you know, plot lines and characters and everything else, but it, you know, I was writing it in between spaces. I was angry actually at the time and we can talk about that too. I think so there was a little bit more vitriol in it than exists now, uh, 15 years later, but the book went through a lot of, you know, it was in and out of the drawer over the years. And then when Rebecca Miller, who is a very dear friend of mine, was looking for a movie, I said, you know, let me tell you a story. And I told her the story of Maggie, uh, which is, uh, one of the women in the book who, uh, anyway, and she fell in love with Maggie's story and said, I want that to be my next movie. So then we worked together over the next four years to make Maggie's plan. And the whole time she kept saying, what do you do with your novel? What do you do with your novel? I was like, you know, I let it be the movie. It'll be the movie. That'll be really good. It'll honor it. And it, the <laughs> movie just kept getting better and bigger and, and, and sort of more attention. And the, the ask on my side was like, can we see your novel? Can we see your novel? I said, no, it's in the drawer. And, and finally somebody just turned to me and goes, for God's sake, just give me the damn novel and let me read it. And it was, and I think some of that was just my trepidation as being an editor and a publisher all these years. I knew the novel wasn't, I felt like it, it needed work. And of course I forgot that that's what editors are for, even though I'd done it for 30 years. You think I would know that? <laughs> but somehow the, it didn't, hmm. the equation didn't work on the flip side. It's like, yeah, all I need is an editor who's going to like kick my ass the way I do all the time for people and, and turn it into a book that was publishable, which in fact, I had the great fortune of finding somebody who was able to do that with me and for me. So it took another year of basically pulling the book apart and, and re rewriting it. But as, again, essentially the, the main characters are still there. Incredible. You wrote once that one of the hardest things for a writer to do is to write something that people want to read. That's an <laughs> yeah. interesting perspective coming from an editor and a publisher and now as a writer. And funny enough, your book was something that people wanted to read before it was even finished. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's quite an accomplishment. I, I don't know what it is. It might be might be insanity. <laughs> but I think, you know what, I think it's these, I don't even feel like it's it's mine. It feels like it belongs to the world. It feels like these women who just 
existed on the page and in fiction and these characters that who wanted to be released into the world. I really do. I mean, Rebecca and I talk about this all the time. It's like, we just want to tell these stories of women and just put, and then put it in the world and then let them, you know, populate the world of storytelling and fiction in a way. Um, and that's what it almost feels like, you know, so me writing it, I'm, I'm sort of just a, a vessel for, you know, representing women of a certain, you know, with certain issues and of, of a certain socioeconomic, you know, status. I mean, I granted we're, we're privileged in many ways, but still saying, you know, there's still, there's still sh- stuff we have to deal with. <laughs> yes. And just another fun fact about Karen Rinaldi, it turns out that the movie, The Switch, starring Jennifer Aniston, and I believe it's Justin Bateman, that's also based on the goings on in your life at the time. So like you said, your life's really been a vessel for great storytelling on the big screen. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's been on the screen. I mean, I feel like I, I, I wrote a little thing about this, just sort of trying to suss it out for myself and tracking the storyline and saying, it was just me trying to figure out how I, and me trying to figure out how I wanted to live my life according to my own rules. I created stories for people along the way to um to sort of build on so that switch the switch actually came from a jeff eugenides short story in the new yorker called baster and baster if you've seen maggie's plan is the way that maggie was going to get pregnant which was based on (laughs) turkey baster (laughs) with a baster anyway she doesn't (laughs) use a baster i think she was using a syringe but anyway the, the story goes (laughs) <laughs> and, and so there's some truth in this, which I, uh, you know, uh, which people who know me well know the story well. Um, there is some truth in this that we it's like, should I just, you know, I, I'm done with men at 33. I was finished with men and I thought I just want to have children. I was going to have a child with a, a gay friend with whom I'm still very close. I mean, he's still I mean, he's like my he's like my family you know, to me. And mm-hmm. so that's what we were going to do. We were trying to decide, do we do it the old fashioned way? Do we do, do I get basic? And then and anyway, the Eugenides, this, this was stemmed from a, a weekend with a bunch of friends and he loved it. He wrote the story. The story got optioned. It became the switch. Um, yeah. And then there are actually other stories that came out of my sort of making a big mess of my life <laughs> as we do, as we're trying to figure out how to live it. Um, so yeah, I'm glad that I'm fodder for stories, and I feel like that that if anything, it, it makes my my missteps and my my uh, less than conventional lifestyle at least maybe interesting to other people. <laughs> well, to say that your life is interesting and fodder for great storytelling is an understatement. And I was actually reading one of the pieces that you wrote for the New York Times about. Uh, previous relationships that you've had, and you're very open, you're very transparent about those experiences, and you talk about what you learned about money yes. from those relationships. You say you came out of those relationships with some unassailable truths. The first is that if the man was making more money, then you were doing things his way. Yes. You also said that if he was broke, he resented your ability to support him. You really experienced that? Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, because it's the ego, right? It's the male ego. Well, I was going to say ego. And it, it doesn't matter. Like, I don't know. I'd be lying if I said that, well, we, we can, you know, that would be saying that supporting a man is easy. I mean, you know, it creates a different kind of tension. I mean, what's beautiful about it is that you have your own agency in a way. I mean, or you, it can help 
for you to have your own agency. Um, but yeah, I think that there, I think, uh, I think the male ego is fragile, um, frankly. And I think that it's a very hard thing to do. Interestingly, all of my closest friends support their families and the husbands are stay at home mm. dads. And there is something in that, um, that I've tried to capture a little bit in the book and, and then in that, in the piece that I wrote, um, you know, we, maybe we went, you know, in wanting our own agency, some of us went a little bit too far, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, sometimes I think that, but I also, I also think that it's, it takes a, an amazing man with incredible sense of self to be a stay at home dad. And it's not just, you know, say, you know, too much just, you know, that, that, that men who don't live conventionally have to have a sense of their manliness in other ways. And those men are awesome when it works. I agree. I agree. My husband, one of them, you know, it's, it's incredible. Um, but I think it's hard. Yeah. And then, and then I think the third point, right. That I make in the piece is that, and if you make the same amount of money, he's constantly having to show you who's boss. And how did your ex do that? I'm curious. You know, listen, the, fir- the first story is tragic. You know, he was the guy who made a lot more money and we were doing things his way. And that wasn't working anyway. But then it wound up. I mean, if you read the piece, you know how that story ends, which is not a not a happy ending. Um, and then, you know, my, my second husband actually was a love. I mean, mm-hmm. he's a, he a really good guy and it really wasn't the money issues there. It was just, you know, other, other issues, but I, you know, in dating, you know, I, you know, was a serial monogamist my whole life. So not only was I married, but I also lived with a couple of people and I never felt like there was a, a restful place when it came to money. And I think money is, I mean, you know, you know, it's, it's money is emotional. We attach things to it that don't belong on it. And I think it can become, it's almost like a sponge that absorbs, you know, the money issues in the house can, can absorb the other things you don't want to talk about, but because it's tangible, because you can count it, because it connotes power or, um, um, you know, means you can, it soaks up the other emotional baggage in a relationship. And so I don't even have an answer for any of this. I really don't. I've been struggling with it you know, my whole life. All I know is that there was never any doubt in my mind from when I was very young that I was going to make my own money and that, you know, and and then take it from there. Like it was never a question of, you know, should I be a stay at home mom or should I let someone support me? I mean, just it, it wasn't even a consideration because I wouldn't want to give that up. And how did you learn that? Was that something that was ingrained in you as a kid because you saw something unravel in your life or you were exposed to an interesting experience? Because not everyone has that mentality. Yeah. Um, it was probably from watching my my parents um, fight mostly about money as um, I was growing up. And they were, you know, we were middle class, you know, suburban New Jersey, Italian family you know, father worked, mother stayed home mother until, uh, I guess high school. And then she went back to work and, um, um, but, but there were always issues and my father wanted to control the money. My mother wanted to spend the money. They fought about it all the time. And it was, you know, money that was controlled, you know, by the bigger personality, meaning my dad. Um, but my mother always being resentful and, Again, once she started making her own money, you know, the cast was set, right, Um, where 
he controlled it the whole time. And I thought, you know, I remember my mother asking very specifically, asking my dad, this is back in the day, right, for the checkbook. You know, can I have the checkbook today? I'm going to buy myself a dress or get my hair done or whatever it was. And I remember thinking, oh, I'm never going to ask somebody if I can have like that will never come out of my mouth. I mean, it was a visceral response of going, I don't even want anybody to know, you know, my money is my money. And, you know, I still, we still, you know, my husband and I have separate, we keep separate accounts you know, to a larger degree. Think about the security Fortune 500 companies use. They need to know police are going to be on the scene immediately. This is exactly the kind of security you get with Simply Safe. If there's a break-in, they use real video evidence to give police an eyewitness account of the crime. And that means police dispatch up to 350% faster than for a normal burglar alarm. With Simply Safe, you get comprehensive protection for your home. Outdoor cameras and doorbells alert you to anyone approaching your house. Entry motion and glass break sensors guard inside. Plus, Simply Safe protects your home from fires, water damage, carbon monoxide poisoning, and it's all monitored 24-7 by live security professionals. You can set it up yourself with no tools needed, or they can do it for you, and it's only 50 cents a day with no contracts. Visit simplysafe.com slash so money. You'll get free shipping and a 60-day risk-free trial. Be sure you go to simplysafe.com slash so money so they know our show sent you. That's simplysafe.com slash so money. I think it's so important, especially in your case, this is not your first marriage. You are your own person. You run your own business. That's like a lot of people getting married today. They are getting married later in life. They're coming to the marriage with their own assets, their own set of experiences and ideals around money. You have to have your own autonomy. You have to be able to maintain some financial autonomy in your relationship. You know what? I couldn't agree with you more. And I know that, again, we're talking from a place, you know, maybe from a place of privilege because we're able to have jobs and make our own money and all of that. So let's just say that those, those... essential things are in place. But yeah, I can't imagine relying on somebody else because, you know, I mean, because anything, anything can happen. I mean, this is the one thing I learned from, from my life very early on, which is like things can happen that you don't, you can't even conceive of right now. You know, not just the, you know, guy having the affair and leaving you like, you know, that that's, that's one thing that can happen. But you know, he, anything can happen, right? Mm-hmm. So you just want to be able to say, well, no matter what happens, I can take care of myself. And, my, and in my case, and in my children, right. I mean, I want to be able to take care of my children. And then if there's more, that's gravy. But, and I think that that autonomy, though, probably makes some people nervous. I, I mean, some men nervous. I mean, I don't care. I mean, who cares? But I, I, I just, I, I don't, I would never sort of leave my fate in the hands of someone else. I, end of story. You know, unless, you know, yeah. it's, it's exclamation the point. Yeah, it's the apocalypse <laughs> and like somebody's got a sword and you don't. It's like, yeah, I'll, I'll hang around behind you. But. Right, right, right. A, a man <laughs> is not a plan, as the saying goes. Oh, heavens no. <laughs> I, I love what you say about sucking at things. And everyone follow Karen on Instagram at suck at something. You could brand this. You've written about how it's great to suck at something. You suck at surfing. I suck at tennis, but I keep at it like I am Martina Navratilova. 
<laughs> you know, it's like, I will get that ball over the net consistently someday. <laughs> right. How long have you been doing it? I remember trying out for the tennis team in eighth grade and thinking, oh, I'm going to go out there. I'm going to do this. I'm so hot. I've got all the accessories. I've got my skirt, my tennis shoes. And I was terrible. I didn't make the team. Back in the day when like everybody made the team. (laughs) Right. Everybody, everybody but you, Farnoosh. Everybody but me. (laughs) And I remember crying so hard that day and thinking, yeah, I know. It was, it was tough. It was a tough day. It was a tough realization. And like you say, you wrote this piece. No one really ever tells you you suck at something unless you have a mean boss, an abusive parent, or a malicious friend. In my case, it was a really mean tennis coach. But she had to make cuts. But I don't know. I keep at it. Just last summer, I took tennis lessons. And I think I got the ball over the court like three times. And it's three more times in the summer before. Yes. And also, like, you don't have to be good at it because you're not (laughs) paying the bills with it. So, Right. I enjoy it. Yes. And I think that... But the ability to enjoy something that you will never excel at or even get any, you know, the rewards to the barrier or the the barrier, but the the barrier to the reward is, you know, there there are no rewards to it. And you think, well, (laughs) who does things anymore where there's no reward? And actually what happened from writing that piece is that when I talked to people about it at first, it made people a little bit uncomfortable because I would always interview people. I've been talking about this for 10 years, right? This is an idea. I have a bulletin board in my office and it says, what do you suck at? Wow. People would say, before you have this conversation with me, tell me what you suck at. And people would kind of shift nervously. And, and I thought, right, that's a little bit, it's a little too hard hitting. And so when I, I wrote the piece, actually, I wrote this piece years ago and I've been writing it and rewriting it and rewriting I also suck at writing, by the way, because like I write things forever <laughs> before they, they actually go into the world. And I just revise and revise and revise and revise. And when it went out in the world, the response was overwhelming. I mean, people have just come to me now to tell me the stories, the tennis story or lacrosse or playing music or some guy saying that he sucks at speaking ancient languages, but he studies Greek and Latin anyway, (laughs) which made me unbearably happy to hear. What's the science behind that? There's got to be some kind of psychological or like adrenaline rush or some stimuli. I I think what it does, and I, it's funny because I'm doing a lot. This has been a theory I've had for uh, yeah about ten years, um, and I'm doing the research now to back my own theory, which is really a bizarre way to do it. But it was just something I know instinctively, and I know it instinctively from surfing for the past fifteen years and being so consistently bad at it, and having to deal with the fact of that. So I think it touches everything. I mean, I'll go so far to say that it touches everything from from teaching you great humility, which I think in our heart and souls mm-hmm. we want, but our culture does not condone or reward humility. It, it, you know, every, with social media and our, you know, just, just the world of you know, the whole world out there right. is just saying reward, 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 success, 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 as opposed to saying humility, patience, um, forgiveness. And this is all of the self, right? This has nothing to do with other people. I'm saying you have to forgive yourself for sucking. And then if you go into a mantra, it's almost like a practice. It's like a meditative practice. I have to go in the water, paddle out and suck at surfing every single time. And I do it all the time and always say, 
don't be angry with yourself, forgive yourself. And it's a beautiful thing. It's almost like a, it's like a discipline. And I think it touches on spirituality. I think it touches on an incredible like endorphin rush when it does, when you do get the ball. It doesn't take much, right? It's like, what else can you do? Right. Yes. Yes. (laughs) It's the little things. The humility factor is huge though. I think looking back on my own experience, failing miserably, we all know what that sort of feels like. And it's kind of addicting. Well, because we have to learn. And I also think that, I mean, a lot of it, I mean, I'm really this, I am on a, uh, I am on a one person mission to make this something that we practice, like a new practice. I'm doing, in fact, my next book is on this. I have the proposal together. and I love it. I buy that book for all my friends and family. And it really is basically saying, look at yourself, like stop looking to other people and pointing the finger and saying, what do they suck at? You know, you know, God, everybody judges everybody else. It's very hard to judge people in that way when you when you do something and have a practice of something you're not good at yourself. Because what you realize is that if you're forgiving yourself for being bad at something and you're getting a rush from it anyway, your your generosity for other people and your patience grows. When that grows, guess what happens? People are happier being around you and it becomes feedback and I realized, you know, I realized that this feedback loop is like something that we're kind of missing right now because all we're doing is hating each other online, lying about how great our lives are on social media, um, reward driven, success driven. I'm going, it's not working. We're, it's not working. People aren't happy. People are more, we're, we're exhibiting, you know, less, there's mental health is, you know, a, a problem. And I do think it comes back to like, go forgive yourself. Self-compassion is a really big piece of this. Um, I'm reading a lot of Thich Nhat Hanh because, um, you know, just, you know, sort of the fundamentals of, you know, the Buddha and I'm not a Buddhist. Um, but I think that there are some fundamental truths in, and I am basically an atheist who has found herself because of this whole practice seeking the wisdom of our spiritual and religious leaders. Because <laughs> my kids are like, are you are you gonna, are you becoming religious? And I was like, <laughs> well, yeah, in a way, but in a way that is something else. It's because there is wisdom in that teaching as opposed to dogma and institutionalization and everything that goes along with it. Right. So what if you peel that away? So, I mean, that's what it is. It's seven waves and what they taught me about humility, patience, and taking it on the head. That's the working subtitle. Well, is Harper Wave going to publish this? Because it sounds, there's, yeah. <laughs> it's all leading back to Harper Wave. Because your subtext is unexpected perspectives on mind, body, and soul. This is it. This is your big idea. It is, but I can't because it's my own. It's my own imprint. I can't publish my own book, so I'll sell it weirdly to another publisher. Yeah, it, I couldn't do it. I it would be too. It would be too close and too, too close. weird. Yeah, I, I see that. Publish itself. Yeah. Well, one thing you're very good at is having an instinct for great literature, great great ideas, great great perspectives. What? does it take now to write a great book from from your perspective someone comes to you with a proposal with an idea what are the questions you're asking what are you looking for oh um that's a good question and a a really a hard one to answer uh what am i looking for i'm looking for uh an original idea i'm looking for an original voice and an authentic voice not one that's sort of created because you think it might sell um, 
you, I'm, I'm looking for, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's all crazy. It's okay. <laughs> sorry about the noises that are happening in my office. Um, you know, mostly I'm looking for original ideas um, and something that can only come from either the from the work and the experience of that person. So I work with authors and writers and the difference is an author writes his or her own work and a writer uh, will write for um, an expert. So I publish a lot of doctors and practitioners and people who, you know, have big jobs and who aren't writers first. It's very hard to write a book that, like I said, it's very hard to write a book that people want to read. It's actually one of the hardest things uh, to do um, because they're all, I mean, you know, you've done it, right? So it's like, it's hard yeah. for reasons that are very hard to explain to people who don't understand that. And I feel, yeah, I can write a book. I can write it in six months. It's like, you know, you probably can't. Um, <laughs> it's even hard for writers to write books and authors to write books, let alone somebody who doesn't do it basically every day. Um, but I'm, yeah, I'm looking for, I'm looking for original ideas and, and, and people who are pushing the limits of how we understand the world we live in and I'm looking for and this is interesting considering not interesting but for where, where I came from you know I used to love edgy fiction when I was a kid you know literary edgy literary fiction and I'm really and, and and there's a place for that and I still love it but really I'm looking for earnestness and candor and transparency and vulnerability um, which is definitely where I got to after many years Right. Your craft informed you, formed your totally. Take on I'm life. learning every day. Yeah, I'm learning. I learn every day. What a great I'm, job you have. I have one of the greatest jobs in the whole world. Yeah. Really well, I'm do. just even looking at your list of books coming out or recently published, I want to read all of them. Um, well, I can send them to you. Yeah. <laughs> I need some summer reading. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Strange yeah, Contagion. I want to read that. Yeah, that's really, and Ooh. that's really apt right now because of what's going on politically, mm -hmm. internationally, and domestically with not only with violence, but just contagion of, of, um, sort of faulty thinking, um, in one way or another, it's really, it, it's really good. And he's great. He's a, he's a writer, he's a journalist and a psychologist. So it comes from a good place and I'll, I'll send you strange contagion. Well, I'll get your address after this. Um, yeah, all I, you know, I get to sit in my office and have the smartest, most wonderful people come to me and tell me everything they know. It, I mean, you know, how much fun is that? I mean, it's a great privilege. And, um, I love it. I've done it for all these years because it's never, it's always new because I'm always publishing a new book and there's always someone, you know, mm -hmm. just people much smarter than me, <laughs> you know, coming into my life. And you, I feel like I'm a grad student. I'm a perpetual grad yes. student. Like You're always today. seeing what's next because these authors are coming to you yeah. with these big yeah. new ideas that are going to move the needle. And I have to say, it's very hard to be a publisher these days, right? I mean, that's an understatement. It's, a it's very never easy. No, you know what? Publishing, this is the thing. If people look at it from a historical perspective, mm. it, publishing has always been hard and, and for and for different reasons. So it changes. The reasons why it's hard changes, but it's always been hard. I mean, think of James Joyce trying to publish, you know, 
Ulysses, you right. know, and Sylvia Beach and, you know, Harry Crosby. If you go back to the publishers, like, you know, from the mid, you know, 20th century, it was really hard. And then if you go to the 19th century, there were no copyright laws. So everyone just stole everything from everybody else. Mm. You know, there, so there's always a story about why it's hard. So it's more of a vocation than it is a business. Of course, because we live where we live and how we live, we have to treat it like a business and it becomes hard to take that vocation with very low margins, very high risk, and then put it into a business model. I always think of us as, and your audience I think will appreciate this, I think of publishers as, as they were venture capitalists. That's really what we are. We're VC, we're VC guys. Um, an editor is a VC guy. <laughs> right. Because what I do is I have to look at all these projects and say, uh, I want that one, that one, that one, not that one, that one. That one. And then you got to be right because if you're wrong all the time, Basically, you lose your job because you're not making enough money to support everything else. So you're you're hedging and you're evaluating and you're evaluating on nothing. It's mostly instinct. And you're and, and the thing about your instinct is that sometimes you're right. <laughs> and a lot of times you're wrong. It's, it's hard. I'll say as a thrice published author, it never gets easier to promote your book. T- to convince someone to buy your book is hard. It's hard. I mean, family members are like, we'd love a copy of your book. Can you bring me one to Thanksgiving? And I want to say, could you buy it? I only poured the last two years of my life into this work. Uh, But sure, I'll give you a free copy. Yeah, I think think that the the, the thought of getting it for free, what do I want to say? It feels, and this is a weird counterintuitive thing. It feels more special because they're getting it from the author. Because I know that feeling, which is, can you send me a copy? I'm like, go how, you know, go buy it, like support yeah. the local bookstore or support the whole publishing process. And no, people like, you know, they, they feel like it's, it's an intimate exchange to get it for free on one hand. On the other hand, if you give away a hundred copies, it's not going to make one difference about whether your book is a success or a failure because right. we're talking books have to sell in the many thousands to be, and then successful is also a relative term. Right. What is your goal, really? I mean, exactly. There's making money, but then there's other ways to leverage your book. It's just putting your ideas in the world to me. And then if it, if it catches fire and people like it and read it and, and it spreads, then wow, that's gravy. But getting it into getting an idea that you feel very passionate about into the world, you know, to me is really the, that's, that's the, that's the goal. Karen, thanks for spending time with us. This Thank has been a lot of fun. Really fun talking. You co- we covered a lot of ground. <laughs> we did. I could ask you more questions, but you have a busy job and a busy life. And we want to leave people wanting more. So everybody go out yeah. and buy The End of Men. And I'm going to really rally behind you, behind this concept of you got to suck at something. I think that's genius. And I think that's your next legacy. Yeah, no, I think I'm pretty passionate about it and it's it's well underway. So I hope it'll be out, you know, I'll probably be done with it in a year. And uh, Well, great. Then we'll definitely have to have you back when that is a book. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, keep up and let me know. Uh, do, do get in touch with me via email about the books on the wave list that I can, I can get for you. Looking forward to it. Thanks, Karen. Thanks so much to Karen for stopping by. Again, the book is called The End of Men. And Karen is very active on Instagram at suck at something, one word. You can also find her on Facebook at Karen Rinaldi Writer. If you missed any of this, don't worry, just hop over to somoneypodcast.com where you can download this episode, download the transcript, and also leave me a question for the Friday episode. If you have a question about money, career, whatever, just shoot me an email, shoot me a note, 
record a message and I will add it to an upcoming Friday episode. Thanks for tuning in everyone. And I hope your day is so money. Money.